Hey everyone, and welcome to another Studio 77 Games Developer Interview. My name is Nigel, and I'm here with Tazzy, and every month we're bringing you conversations with different creative professionals as we look to demystify video game culture and raise awareness of career paths in the industry for the next generation of young and aspiring creators. Uh, and anyone who is interested in just understanding how the games we play come together. Um, so for anyone who's new, who's watching this live, or who is watching this later on whatever platform we put it out on, uh, Gamepad is our community gaming event and platform, promoting inclusion and diversity in the games industry, plus providing young people with work experience opportunities as they make their way into a career in video games. So we've been doing online events since 2020 because, you know, uh, and this year, as you know, last year now, uh, we launched our Studio 77 membership, which gives people exclusive access to gamepad events and content across the Maya Matter universe. Content like this interview, which will be available to Studio 77 members after it has disappeared from Twitch VOD. Like I said, we're going to be doing a live video game indie developer interview. So let's introduce our guest. Uh, so we have with us today Pietro Vigi Riva. Uh, Italian game designer and co-founder of the indie game studio Santa Ragione. Hopefully I pronounced all of those right. Pietro will tell me if not. There we go. <laughs> uh, Pietro, Thank you welcome. so much for having me. Hi. Yeah, it was perfect pronunciation. Thank you. Good. I'm going to, we've got that on record. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Tazzy, how are you doing as well? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm pretty excited actually because uh, Halo Halo Online's out and uh... oh yeah, I'm hearing <laughs> good things. <laughs> I'm I'm in that in Halo multiplayer. Yeah, hello, welcome everyone in chat as well. Like chat's there um, if you're watching live, uh, so feel free to leave any comments or feedback or questions you wanna wanna input um, there throughout today's stream. It's November apparently <laughs> We're halfway. we are more than halfway through november we are more than halfway through november exactly yeah and we also have the date for our next gamepad online event um it will be coming to you on saturday the 15th of january uh, as always tickets are free and they're available now uh, you can enjoy us uh, with some game streams uh, panels um and we also have some team spots open in our friendly fire competition um, for a chance to win some really cool prizes uh, so make sure you're following us here on twit and make sure you follow the podcast and all your podcasting platforms and you can check out our latest episode uh, where we have a deep dive into marvel's eternals which is really interesting very deep dive yeah <laughs> i mean we could have kept going and going with that yeah. one <laughs> um yeah and we'll have uh the social media links in chat uh for everyone here today as well as uh you can watch us uh when you're if you're watching this later on youtube in the description and then if you are watching this later remember you can contact us um through via our discord or, or email us at feedback at mymatter.com and um, we're also on social media my matter on twitter my matter tv on instagram and tiktok <laughs> Yeah, eventually we'll have some actual stuff on TikTok. Yeah, uh, we'll swell. get some stuff. <laughs> I've got a few ideas. I've got a few ideas. Okay, I need them. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you can find me at Tazzy on all of them. Yeah, uh, should we get get into our discussion today? 
So as I mentioned, Pietro is co-founder and creative director of his own studio. So he's produced uh, award-winning video games such as Mirror Moon EP for Tanaka and Wheels of Aurelia. So you're also, as I understand, currently working on a survival horror adventure game, uh, Saturnalia. Is that pronounced right? Correct. All right, I'm checking every yes, pronunciation. <laughs> we, we pronounce it Saturnalia, but Saturnalia is just as correct. Okay, I mean, cool. it's a word that exists in multiple languages. I will accept just as correct. Um, I'm happy with that. So, so yeah, want to definitely talk to, talk to you about uh, the stuff you're doing, but we like to ask people how they got to where they are. So it's always good to find, about, uh, find out about the journey that um, people have taken and I'm always particularly interested in the moment people decided like they wanted to work in video games because everyone takes a different path. So for you, if people hadn't already guessed uh, by now, where did you grow up? And at what point did you decide that you wanted to work in video games? So to me, it definitely was not an epiphany. It wasn't like, like an experience that led me to, oh no, now I know that I need to make this that I need to make this my job or anything like that. So I obviously grew up in Italy, in Milan. And if I were to kind of like place where gaming started like becoming important to me, it's probably uh, related to um, growing up as an only child, I think. Because I think as an only child, you are inevitably uh, kind of like responsible for your own games and your own entertainment and your own like spending time by yourself. And I think that as, you know, very early on uh, started for me this this you know, uh, uh, idea of, of, of inventing games to play, right, on my own. And I think that's like if you, if you want to find uh, you know, somewhere in my childhood that, that you know, made the difference for me, that's, that's what it would be. But then... Growing up, I, I studied design in university. When you say design, like game design or just... No, 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 no. I don't believe in game design. <laughs> this is it's kind of funny because I've been teaching game design for many years. But um, no, no, no. It's, it's, so the, the university I was going to is called uh, communication design. They design uh, anything that is not physical. So it's not product, it's not interiors, it's not architecture. It's like... And, but... At the core of it is this discipline of design, this idea of you know planning a project and developing a project that I think has come very has become very useful for me uh, growing up as a professional, uh, having studied that stuff. So while I was doing that, I actually uh, started making a, a board game with some friends uh, from university and and a friend uh, I've met actually on on a video game forum uh, back in. I'm going to say 2004, 2005, something like that. And we became friends talking about video games. And then we started all of us together. So um, people from uni and this friend of mine started making this board game that eventually became Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space, which is our first commercial product. So, you know, we made it for fun as an experiment just because, I guess, studying that at that university, we had so many of the skills needed to actually make this idea into a full product. I'm talking about like the edition itself, you know, the graphics, mm. the, you know, um, the rule book and all that. And so uh, we ended up with a pretty finished thing. Then we uh, met some publishers at, um, at a pretty famous game and comics fair in, uh, in Italy called uh, Luca Comics. Oh, I know that and one. And we, yeah, it's big. It's huge. I think it, it, it I mean, pre-COVID was like, I want to say... Yeah. 
half a million visitors a year or something. Is like that the that. one that takes over the town? I was told. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's this extremely beautiful, small medieval town in Tuscany that is just you know as the, the the size that it used to have. It's it's all uh, encircled by walls, and inside that it all gets taken over by the the comms fair for three days a year. Pretty intense experience. That sounds amazing. Uh, yeah, it's worth going once. one time okay Uh, one time yeah i recommend one if you really enjoy it then but anyone should go um and there we met our first publishers and we showed them the game and then uh, since no we we wanted to publish it together we had to sort out contracts right and instead of like since it was four of us instead of like doing four separate contacts as authors and also because we did the edition as well of not just you know authoring the game these are like specific board game industry uh, details but it, it became easier for us to just start a studio start a company from a bureaucratic standpoint and so uh, you know we we registered the the, the company name santa Ragione and, and you know we started it like just like just like that but without the idea of making this you know our job it was just you know a a solution to a problem of having to figure out the logistics of publishing this game but then me and nicolo uh, is that friend that i met on the internet forums nicolo tedeschi with whom i made games up until 2017 uh, we started working on another thing together uh, which was photonica which you mentioned briefly before which is this um first person running game in black and white with vector graphics and uh, the reason why we made that game is because we neither of us could program because we don't come from a technical background, right? And that's one of the reasons why our first game was a board game. Like we had no idea how to make a video game. <laughs> uh, but then uh, basically, so Unity came out. I think I think uh, the first version of Photonica, which you know was worn as. Um, it's sort of like a, a gem game, a competition game, actually. Um, there was this competition on uh, Fig Source called, I think it's still, it's still happening, actually, a game by its cover, uh, which is, uh, so in this community, <laughs> there is this exhibition in Japan where artists, uh, visual artists, create fake um, Famicom cartridges covers every year. And oh, then cool. <laughs> what happens is that on, on, on Fig Source, they had this competition where People made those fake games. They tried to think and create what those fake covers would be like if played. So they made the covers, um, and then someone would come and make the game or try and make the game. Yes, yes, yes. It's completely, I mean, completely unrelated. It's like a spontaneous thing. It was not like organized. It was the exhibition in Japan, and then people on this forum uh, made those games based on those covers, right? right? And, I, and again, I think it's still, it's still a thing. And so we made our first prototype for that competition using Unity, I want to say 2.6, something very early like that. And the, the reason why we made the game that way is it was the easiest, simplest thing that we could program. Both of us not knowing anything about programming, right? It's we just like took the player controller in Unity that comes like with the, <laughs> the Unity scene and removed the ability to turn around and strafe, and just we made a thing that could <laughs> run forward, and that was our our first game basically. And in, we obviously invested a lot in visuals and graphics, which was the things that we knew more about. So that's kind of like how it started. So it sounds like. Well, it sounds like everything you did was like necessity. It wasn't necessary. Was it necessarily like a plan? It was just like we need to do this. So oh, we're gonna 
like start no, companies wasn't to do this at all. <laughs> yeah, I I understand that. Yeah, because I'm I'm also operating on lack of plan. <laughs> <laughs> so I get that. So does that mean you've technically always worked in games, if not video games, or have you worked in other industries? No, no, I've I've never worked in another industry, and I've never worked in games outside of Santa Regina because as I was finishing my studies you know kind of like the the the, the projects grew and the you know the, the games became bigger and so it became it became my job and so it, i right. transitioned in, uh, yeah directly into that and it's still my main thing even though i've been teaching i've been collaborating with other studios but you know my my main job has always been uh, working in in santa regione yeah kind of cool yeah like uh, just done this thing for fun and then kind of just happens i just ended now. up here <laughs> like <laughs> here i am <laughs> yeah i don't recommend this as an approach to anyone else by the way <laughs> i don't think it's very yeah it's risky and still today you know even if uh, you know i i i've been working at the university so I, I i always know that you know if a game doesn't work there's something else i can do but there is still I'm still worried that, you know, this very spontaneous approach that doesn't look too much of what the market is doing and, you know, the, what games are selling and all of that is, you know, is keeping me up at night, even without, you know, the, the, the same worries that, you know, you could have, if you didn't come for, with, with that, uh, you know, um, idea that you could always do something else. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I, I get that. It's, it's like, yeah. Cause you, what you're doing is in a, in a sense is quite, like counter to say mm. mainstream i mean just the nature of indie anyway but i feel like what you're doing in particular is quite counter but then there's always a like a, a niche a market it's like how do you how do you find that niche and how do you how do you reach it yeah that's the thing like i i've never quite thought about that a lot i always hope that the things that we do and we like doing end up finding the people that like them but that's you know again it's not a very <laughs> sound strategy. It's more um, so. For example, I I strongly believe believe in the in the power of uh, curation, which is not something that <laughs> exists uh, very much in the industry anymore. And this <laughs> is the idea that you know I'd rather be convincing one person that what we do is worth playing and sharing, and then this person with an outreach can get the game in front of players. Rather than you know doing uh, marketing and, and convincing player by player to hey try this thing. So even for example something like you know Game Pass to me is the greatest idea ever because just like the friction uh, for players to try new things this is much lower right because you Whoa. you know turn on your Xbox yeah yeah and it's it's a good thing because people are afraid of spending their money on something they won't like right but mm -hmm. it's in your it's in your catalog anyway so, so it looks interesting and the people you already at have it xbox have chosen yeah. yeah and so they that's a curated experience right you know you know some people and, and probably rightly so they they say that sometimes things on, on netflix aren't quite up to what they expect them to be like in terms of quality and they end up like watching things that they don't like but still they give those a chance because they know they've seen many shows on netflix and so they expect the next thing that is advertised in a certain way that looks a certain way from you know from the graphics on the app to have a certain appeal and so they're willing to try it even if they've never quite heard about it before and that that to me is ideal compared to something like what happens on steam where 
you know, you just get pulled up by the algorithm. And if you're selling well and you bring your own community to it, then it gets exposed to other people. But there is no one really making a decision of like, hey, everyone should check out this thing, right? So all the burden of getting the name, the game known to players is onto the developer who doesn't necessarily know how to because it's not, you know, their forte or have the resources to, right? So yeah, that's my... Those are my mm. thoughts on this topic. No, it's cool. I would, we, I, like I said, we're definitely going to talk like game designs and uh, and things around that. And then you're you're in Italy at the moment. And whenever like we speak to people from other countries, always keen to know like what the video game industry is like because you know we're in the UK, we're in London um, specifically, and it's very easy to have that shape your view of what like everywhere is like where I'm from. Um, and I know that's not the case. So, yeah, what is the video game industry or just culture in general like in Italy? And has it changed much since you started in it? It definitely changed so much. Uh, when we started back in 2010, there were very, very few studios in Italy, both in you know, AAA, AA and indie side. And almost none of the indie studios were making original ips as their core business so there were not many studios that would like make invent a new game with new characters and new genres and anything like that and start you know seeking a publishing gear or self-publishing it would all be very tiny studios that would mostly do you know b2b so anything that is tangentially related with games or real-time rendering and then have maybe um uh, you know a pet project they would develop on the side that they would eventually release or uh, they would be um, making games in extremely well-established genres like, you know, racing simulations or something. And then there were a ton of like very, very small, not necessarily studios, but like group of friends that would like, start making a prototype that wouldn't get necessarily anywhere. And it's not like that at all anymore. And like now there is, I can't personally, I used to be able to keep track of like the entire scene in Italy. And now it's just like hundreds of studios that are all making original products that are absolutely on the level of all the other European productions. And it's, you know, uh, they get published, they get successful, and maybe I've, I've never heard about them. And then I notice, oh, this game that has 5,000 reviews on Steam was made in Italy. I had no <laughs> idea about that. So uh, it, it changed tremendously, yes. And, you know, we have still have like the super big studios here as well, and they've grown. I mean, 505 Games is Italian. And you know, they own multiple development studios across multiple genres, and they're like a big international publisher that did like Death Stranding on PC or like stuff like that. And uh, and they've you know they've also become more important, and the industry has grown as a result of this. But yeah, that and of course the other thing that has changed is that there is much more education available for people that want to you know get in the industry, which I like. I wouldn't recommend doing doing game design when you are 19 or 20 because i feel like it's you, you know no no i would recommend taking something more broad first so that you have you know stronger for example in design like a stronger sense of what of design as a discipline in itself before you start thinking specifically about games because that's such uh, okay. like an edge case that if you I think if you're start immediately starting off like just by focusing on this that, well first of all it's really hard to know what you want to do when you are IT yeah. eating, I think in my experience. And That's so <laughs> the earlier you kind of like put yourself into like a, you know, a direction that you can't change later on, then you know, uh, the worse it can be. But 
Yeah, that's that, that's my reasoning for it. Like in my experience, people actually like. When, <laughs> let me start from another side. When we start a new project at Santa Ragione, one thing that we do uh, like to do is try to get on the project people that have never done games before, like uh, as writers or art directors, like in leading roles for you know important parts of the project. And the reason is that we they usually bring in uh, such a fresh look yeah. on things, and you know they help us achieve uh, you know get a, a, a product that doesn't quite look like everything else. That's and it's recognizable that it even inspires us to come up with new ideas in terms of game design and gameplay, like just from starting from their point of view on what the game could be like, just because they're not used to thinking all the, the you know, stylizations and um, stereotypes that exist already. In they're not games. the same like routine, like they, you don't have yeah. the same. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah, and even like that dictionary of interactions that we're all used to think about when we start thinking about our video game, right? Uh, they don't necessarily know, you know, that uh, you have to close off an area and then give the player an opportunity to find a key or a tool to open up there. Look, these like small structures that we're used to expecting games, they're completely non uh, <laughs> clear or obvious. So they might come up with different solutions and different ideas and make you think like, oh, do we really need to do that? Or am I just doing it because every game is doing it? And to have that approach, we really need to have someone that has, hasn't done games before. And in my experience, people that come into games later on, like coming from other practices or disciplines, they are they do more interesting work. And so my recommendation is for everyone to like try something else and like just keep your mind on to games and like thinking what the things that you're learning and doing could be applied in games, but not necessarily like study games right from the start and make games your only focus in life because to me that's a recipe for, you know, repetition and just like sort of like having a close-minded approach to to the discipline. I yeah, no, I agree with that. And it's funny. So I it makes me think of when I do conventions, actually I did the first convention since the pandemic just over the weekend, but when I do more conventions prior to the pandemic and do talks and talk about, okay, we make manga uh, and this is, you know, some of our sort of storytelling uh, process as uh, where we got ideas. When we get questions, people would assume that I know everything about manga and I've read every manga and I have to quickly disappoint them. I have not is more than likely the people I'm speaking to know more <laughs> about manga than I do. So I tell them actually when I get my idea, I don't necessarily get my ideas from manga because I'm not reading a whole bunch or more than I was then, but just put it from other places from like book books or like novels from film, from TV, from just other places. And then that allows you to make, new things because i always felt if if you just get your ideas from the same medium you're working in you'll just re yeah. repeat like sort of derivative versions of what's already been done so you want to like spread out so i totally get that but it's just interesting that you intentionally put it into your process and get people that's quite a yeah i don't know a bold innovative i don't know what the word is but that's a unusual move because a lot of people <laughs> in, in a sense give give some form of lip service to that but you're sounds like you're intentionally doing it that must be a must come with some challenges if you're bringing in people who are oh, yeah. always new 
Absolutely. They're completely unaware of like the production pipeline and like how things work and like, and you know, the kind of tools that you use, the kind of like, the, um, you know, the sort of like limitations that, that we have technologically and even like in terms of like the amount of work that can be dedicated to the various parts of, of game making. So it, it is challenging and then there is a lot of like learning and maybe you're like learning that thing and, you know, making games just for that one project. So it also depends on the person if they think that it's worth doing it. And, you know, there's a lot of balance of like this stuff that you need to do for them so that they are able to do their work and mm. the things that they need to learn to do on their own. So they have like the freedom of not always having to go through you to get something in the game. Oh, for yeah. Example. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's definitely challenging. Again, it's not what I would recommend for like a smooth, predictable production experience <laughs> in, in, in game design. Absolutely. But it can work. And, it, it, and I think it's easier than it looks. And it's definitely something that, you know, it's worth trying, especially on a smaller project, right? And maybe, you know, try not to have like everyone in the team that doesn't come yeah, from yeah. games and maybe like <laughs> the, no, the art director. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone that knows how the thing works uh, would be, be useful, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, let's talk about your, your studio then. And when we do these interviews, we, we speak to people in different roles because I think, you know, it's, it's important that, for someone who is i mean it's always interesting for people who are just interested in the industry and how it works but for those who see themselves as wanting to be in like working in the games industry to have a knowledge of different types of roles because normally it's like working in games is coding and art is the the feedback i get but you know there's there's more to that so can you explain uh, your role as studio director and where that role falls in the process of making games Right. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so what do you do, uh, that, basically? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, studio director is more of like a title of like my activity across projects within the studio. So, like, like keeping my head on the various projects that coexist at the studio at the same time, and you know, making sure they all have the resources that they need and they all have the direction that they need uh, but then like on Saturnalia specifically which is the, the game that we're working the biggest game that we're working on right now I'm directing the game itself right so in that case I'm, I'm director of that game and I'm also producer of that game which is not an uncommon thing to have someone directing and producing the, the game at the same time I'd much rather have someone else uh, produce the game uh, because that's the I think to me that's the toughest job of the of the of the line, and I think there are also really? people that are much better than me at doing <laughs> it. And um, so uh, the, the distinction here being that you know the producer kind of like tries to make everything go smooth and as planned, and as like helping everyone that is working on the project in different departments, kind of like uh, making sure that they can do their work at at the um, in the best. Mm, the situation so they have the resources that they need they get you know their questions answers and their problems solved and um that so that's yeah that's the, the main thing which usually means like checking in on people on a regular basis and making sure that you know the communication between members of the team is going correctly and you know that you know that art that is needed by that department is going to be done by a certain date or something like that and instead, as director, it's more like all the kind of like top level creative choices. So, you know, uh, when, when a project is more structured, you would have, in, in my case, we would have, you know, different heads of departments that, you know, are 
you know, head of programming, art direction, uh, head of narrative. And then with these people, we would discuss, you know, the feel and look and, you know, the experience of the game. And then they, in my preference is that they would make, uh, you know, creative decisions for their, you know, their um, department freely based on those, you know, top level directions of what the game should feel like. So, you know, talking about mood and then the art director translates those mood individuals and what the, the references and the looks that they know would work and bring in and you know uh, work together with the gameplay to achieve that kind of experience um so that i would i would say that that's pretty much what, what i do as director of the game right you know the game now is is basically finished so there is not much in terms of like making big creative decisions on the game it's more about Wait, this is the new game you're working on yeah, 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 Saturnine, okay. who's been, which has been in development for four and a half years. So okay. uh, it's a long, very long project. And right now it's more like, you know, solving experience or gameplay issues such as, you know, this, uh, this you know, from hour five to hour seven of the game, the rhythm is not quite there where we want it in terms of like pacing in the game and how you know exciting it becomes in respect to the scenes that happened before. Mm. And keep in mind, this is a, <laughs> a non-linear open world game. So, and so, how do we make how do we make that part more exciting? And and then maybe we can think this is a real example that that happened recently of an, of a new mechanic that just enters in the game at a later stage. And th- th- those kind of creative decisions, of course, because they impact the game so much and they change the production, they change, you know, they have some significant impact on the game production. They're made, they're made, you know, at a direction production level, yeah. of course. So yeah. it's something that is shared across the team that, yeah, we have a problem there, but then taking the responsibility of saying, yeah, we need a couple more months of production to change this thing to get you know, the game all to the same quality of level, level of quality. Yeah, that's that, that would be... Uh, Direction production. Normally, it would be you know a director and a producer fighting about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In this case, it's the same person. It's <laughs> more about you fight. know so you fight a yourself. line in your yeah. head with your eyes open. Yeah, and thinking, am I doing the right thing? Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. So, I mean, with the new game, um, Saturnalia, is is there is there something that because you were talking about like bringing different people and perhaps learning mm-hmm. different things. Is there something that you're doing differently that you can speak about? I know you might not be able to say everything about the game, but is there something you, you, you plan on bringing differently from this game? So much. Uh, yeah, I don't, every project that we've made that we've changed, kind of like built on top of what we learned, of course. I mean, that's, sure. like, I guess that's obvious, but we really try to, you know, change a lot from project to project. We're not, like we never made a sequel, we never made a game in the same genre twice. So that's already a, a big change. And the other thing that we do like to do is not make games in established genre. So even if, you know, Saturnalia formally is a survival horror adventure, there is a lot of stuff that happens in the game that doesn't quite fit the genre. For example, the structure of the gameplay progression is more like a, a kind of like a Metroidvania uh slash adventure game uh, so think of an adventure game that happens in an open world where you can tackle any direction and explore in any direction and find quests and puzzles in any directions and then you get tools and and abilities to open up new areas and then there is a you know a dynamic narrative on top of this that adapts to the choices that you've made and how you decided to progress 
with multiple characters <laughs> across this, you know, mm. open world. And then on top of that, uh, in the game, if you lose all the characters that you've unlocked, you basically the, the, the shape of the village is reset. So the village is shuffled around and the geography of the village in which the game takes place changes. So it has some roguelite elements as well, which are pretty uncommon in this horror adventures genre. Like you don't lose your progress, like you don't lose the progress you've made in puzzles and the story, but you lose your sense of direction of the where you've learned that things are in the level. Uh, so these two things are already something new, not just to us, but like as a, we don't have you know, a frame of reference of another game and looking at that, oh yeah. We can we can we copy that and make it like that. We we're we're bringing in elements from many different games and combining them into new systems. And you know that's always you know <laughs> yeah. a recipe for big surprises in terms of technology and you know um, how we teach the game to the player, for example, and things like that. Plus, we're doing a lot of technological stuff that is new from a technology standpoint. Like it's our first game with motion capture and. Uh, the characters in the game have um, their faces are animated with motion capture done with a phone. So we have an app on on, on the new uh, you know the new iPhones that have the the 3D scanning capabilities. There is apps that yeah. capture your face and then translate that into an asset that you can use in your engine. So all the characters have different expressions based in, in the dialogue, and you know we never done that, and we had to find a pipeline to integrate that in our game or. You know, the, our game doesn't have any overlay uh, direction system that tells you, like, in Assassin's Creed, hey, you, you know, follow this mark and you will get to wherever you're trying to go, right? No waypoints. Which is, you know, a staple in... Yeah, exactly. We don't have any of that. We have uh, diegetic street signs that you can follow oh, cool. to find your way around the village. But those need to work in a procedural world. So they need to dynamically adapt to the streets that oh, are yeah, procedurally generated in the everything yes exactly so the maps and the signs that says church this way and it's not like church this way in in, in, in the direction the general direction of the church no it's it's leading you through the mazes of a medieval italian village so it needs to take into account the pathfinding across the road that leads you lead you to to the church but the, that those systems are extremely uh technically complicated uh, to do it to integrate in the you know the, the, the multiple systems that exist in the game so we we've done a lot of new things in in the technology that we're using the rendering as well the game is you know it, it uses unity but doesn't quite look like a unity game mm. I, I think I hope I think that's a big that's a big uh, it's an important thing when you're using any engine any tool to not let uh, too much of the identity of that tool transpire through through the game so you can immediately say hey this was made in unreal right? this was made in unity you want to avoid that and we went the opposite direction we just like tried to to find a very uh, striking original rendering so that you, from a screenshot you would immediately know that saturnale saturnale that's our game and that meant you know for example none of our textures of color the entire world is rendered in black and white and all the color that you see in the screenshot that there is either colored light or post-processing and on top of that there's this uh, mix of post-processing effect and on geometry effect that does the etching that looks like it's hand-drawn and then the characters are animated only 12 frames per second compared to the 60 frames per second of the background. So they look like they're being rotoscoped in real time. They're being like drawn, hand-drawn as they move. 
and all of that contributes to you know, the game looking wow. unique. But all of that, as you can imagine, is like the result of you know not just you know the technical difficulties of achieving that, but also the struggle from another direction standpoint of understanding what is needed and what is not needed and how we you know what are the steps to achieve a certain look that is readable that is compatible with the gameplay that is you know evokes the right mood that is you know respectful of a certain era respectful of a certain place all of those things together so yeah you sound like someone who likes to make things hard for themselves. <laughs> yeah. You're saying you're bringing in like new people outside of, of gaming to make new games that you haven't made before. And you're going to throw all that <laughs> in on yeah. every project. Like, <laughs> do you hate yourself is what I'm, is what I'm asking. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's 50% of the reason. Okay. And the other 50% is that it's a very competitive market. And it's like, either you excel an existing specific thing like you're, you can make the best action platformer the best metroidvania the best deck building game or uh you can try and make new things and then uh, you will end up attracting people that are interested in you know playing something new that they haven't played before and of course you you're going to be the best at something that hasn't been done before by definition yeah, so yeah. i think that's that's what that you, you got to choose one direction or another i i don't have the game culture and the knowledge and the skills to compete on established genre i don't think so it's also it neither sounds interesting to me nor i think that i have that in me so uh, that, that, that the alternative is just like trying to do something new fair enough and i mean you mentioned like doing something new and doing something new in a market where there is a lot of uh like established or similar uh, ideas and when it comes to marketing uh your your games like how do you go about that because for in for indies i imagine the marketing process and considerations are different than a triple uh, i mean the resources are are different for one so what's important for you as an indie to get your game out like what works for you is it uh, i've seen a lot of like steam wishlisting being a thing or is it getting you know on on blogs or review early reviews what what works I have no idea. Like everything, <laughs> even like changed so much since we started doing this. You know, when we released Mirror Moon EP, which was our first commercial game on Steam, I think on that day, four more games came out. So it was just five new games on Steam. And nowadays it's like a hundred games, right? So you immediately know how different it was to launch back then. And like people would get, Older gaming news from the big websites, right? So if you could get coverage on, you know, mainstream or, you know, even like websites that would be covering indie games that would have a lot of people checking checking those and participating in those communities, right? But now it's completely different. Like people learn about games from Discord and their friends. And I've learned that either I make the games or I try and keep up with uh, how it changes all the time, how the, the marketing goes. And that's, that's why I said what I said before about curation, because it's just like, if you don't have that, then you definitely need to have someone in the team that just like knows, for example, that now one of the biggest thing, ways to be discovered as a game is, you know, posting clips on TikTok, right? And then try those and try and see what sticks and be like, you know, go over the game every day and try and find the clip that would make sense and edit it in a certain way and then publish it on that platform and try to get traction from that. And then how do you convert those into wish lists? It's, it's both extremely complicated and ever-changing. 
which uh, makes it for, uh, you know, I think you really need to have someone that, you know, is just dedicated to that and knows those channels and know, and is able to predict, you know, what the next uh, social network is going to be that's going to be interesting for people in the next six months for it to work. So in other, in other words, I have no idea. And yeah. that's, <laughs> that's also anyone... a recommend. Yeah. I, I definitely don't have an idea about marketing. And, and it feels like a cliche to say, but it, it does change so fast. Like you said, like clips on TikTok for your game, like even yeah, months ago, that wouldn't, or yeah, a couple of years ago. But like last year to this year. Yeah. It's been dramatic. Like the changes have been dramatic on how to just be discovered online for anything. Absolutely, yeah. Is because uh, I, I, yeah, again, like sometimes speaking with young people who you know want to make their own game, and then thinking about the game and not thinking about the marketing, which is just as, if not in some ways, more more important to to actually making things work. But yeah, none of us have any idea. Just uh, get someone on it. Get someone who does. Well, that's yeah, the I hope you get someone on the podcast that does that. <laughs> yeah, some insight. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, because that'd be that'd be very useful. Yeah, I mean, guess that's a, like a reason to to go for publishers, even if you know we, we might be that for your project you don't technically need publishing help because you can self-publish right on all the digital stores, but still, you know, working with someone that knows how to get the game out there. I, it's a massive difference and they can take you know whatever percentage they want as if they can achieve this certain this, the, the kind of results you know that they're supposed to and that's a really that's the, the really tricky balance being a developer like knowing when you go in a partnership with someone whether they are actually going to contribute you know to mm. the, how well known the game is before launching or not and it's really hard because things are changing so quickly even not it's not necessarily true that like looking at what they've done until yesterday would be indicative of what they're going to do with your game so even if in theory uh it could be better to go with a publisher in practice it might change it might not be true and it's hard to say you know which publishers are good which don't are not uh but um, that's certainly like a thing worth considering even if you think that, you know, from a technical standpoint, you don't necessarily need a publisher to get the game on the stores. Is that something, are you, do you have a publisher relationship or is it, does it differ between different games? We have multiple publisher relationships with different games. And I think there is also the very good reason of like, once you're very small, it's hard to tackle multiple platforms. And usually the publisher can help you either through internal development or external development, get the game ported consoles or mobile and things like that. So uh, that's one of the reasons why we do have publishing deals and we will be seeking publishing deals. But for me, it's like also this idea that, you know, I want to partner up with someone that can do all the all the marketing and the outreach and be on top of what how things are changing mm. in communicating games. So I want to talk about like game design in general because I'm uh, yeah I'm eager to hear your your thoughts on certain things. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that you got started making board games. So mm-hmm. do you think there's anything that like aspiring video game designers developers can learn about video game design from tabletop gaming? Oh yeah, for sure. The production experience is, is similar, even though <laughs> you know prototyping is much quicker so you get get a new version running right much faster 
where you actually change the rules, right? You don't make minor changes. Like if you need to integrate a new system to, you know, play test and see how it changes the game in a video game, it might take a week. And with a board game, it's usually a couple of hours of work and then, you know, cutting and drawing new things and then you have a new prototype. But then, you know, producing the game, producing a physical game is super expensive and very hard to get it distributed. So that's the downside of that thing because you need to make a physical thing that needs to be everywhere in the yeah, world and yeah. enough copies that people... Yeah. Uh, but in terms of design, I think so. There's very, very different experiences. And as I, as I mentioned before, I'm not uh, into you know, designing systems, which is usually the core experience of a board game. They have like these balanced rules that make for interesting choices moment by moment where you're just like looking at a system and try to interpret the best strategy given the tools that you have. That's not something that I, that, that I'm good at or very much interested in. <laughs> uh, but I know a lot of brilliant designers that I've worked with through the years that they're extremely good at that. And they, you know, they're used to thinking in terms of like, scenarios of people playing those games uh, while they're designing them so like if you go to, to to them with an idea for a board game they might be able to tell you well yeah that game doesn't work because on turn six when this happens then you will do this and the game will be broken right? and you just like you just had an idea for for a board game they will be able to kind of like explode this idea <laughs> into all the scenarios in which the game can happen that's a typical of, of of board game designers and i definitely think that it's you know similar to how we approach uh, designing uh, dynamics in games so this idea of like how will the players use this mechanics that we make available to them how will they interact with each other and we yeah. try to how imagine will they break it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, you know, the more open-ended, the more creative the game is, the more unpredictable. And so you start thinking in terms of, like, heuristics of, like, what is likely to happen and how, uh, you know, you have this contract with the player where you, you know, you expect them to play by the rules and you, like, giving them enough information to know what the rules are and what you expect from them. So that kind of, like, projecting play scenarios i think is it works in both disciplines and is very easily transferable one from one way to the other yeah and then there are you know there are some video games that are absolutely board games only translated <laughs> digitally and well, literally and in just like games that, are, that feel very board gamey uh there's a lot of like calculating points so like all the maths that the game can do for you and just like give you uh, a result, a feedback is much better played digitally than physically because otherwise you have like to take notes and count things and count tokens and all that stuff. Not necessarily uh, super fun depending on, on your preference. So most, I think a lot of board games actually work better as a, as a video game where like, like the computer can take over uh, a lot of the boring stuff they talk that you need to do uh, but then there is you know the experience of being around the table and interacting with physical things and especially if that you know if it's a beautiful edition with beautiful components that, like all the sensory quality of, of of playing together that you can't really do with video games that definitely make it into you know a very different very separate experience so uh sorry i'm just like <laughs> coming up with, with with ideas as we talk about it but <laughs> to me the, the 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 biggest difference is that 
There's a lot of people that think about board games in terms of rule sets, and then those rule sets get turned into an addition, right? I have an idea for it, like an abstract way of relating rules with each other. And then and the publisher comes in and says, oh, this game idea is very cool. I'm just going to make it into, you know, ancient Egypt gods fighting over control of area thing. Uh, and that's that to me is a super boring approach. But then there are uh, board game designers that think about the game holistically as in how the components kind of like participate in the feeling that you have while you're playing the game. And then the materials, the addition, the, the colors, the print, they all come together into creating a specific mood that is just as important as the rules into you know creating uh, the game that is played at the table eventually and those experiences to me are much more interesting and those products are uh, you know uh, to me they usually have it's meaningful to me that they are physical products that they are board games that are not video games as opposed to something that is just an abstract set of rules to them attaching in a setting hmm. yeah i get that that addition of like thinking about how does this make the, the player feel hmm. while playing the game is important. Like even yeah, when you are thinking about video games, that is also important. But it's easier to think about when you are literally dealing with physical objects. Yeah. In that, I get that. Yeah. So something I wanted to get to, I wanted to make sure I get to this because on the on the topic of game design, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, but I so I saw that in in twenty sixteen, you put out a manifesto for non traditional game design called rejector yes and i was looking through it and we'll put like notes in the chat or um when we put yeah when we put this out later so you can see the full thing we're not going to uh, go through the full thing but there were a couple of things that stood out to me so i wanted to bring them to you and just get some context around them because you had a number of points i think it was four and five that stood out so you had number four which is no game should last more than two hours mm-hmm and then number five is no game should take more than six months to produce. Right. So I clearly failed on the second one. I <laughs> know <laughs> the first one as well. So yeah. I mean, so, the first yeah. one in, in particular, because obviously where we are now, that's not the world we live in. It's like, it feels like games are trying to get bigger and bigger. And like Tazzy and I have spoken about this. And even, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was earlier this year, we had a, uh, so I did a panel as part of one of our gamepad events about, you know, is game design getting too big to fail? Where we looked at the rise of like open world games and the size of games, obviously looked at cyberpunk and where that can go go wrong. So what are your thoughts on on the the state of like games getting larger? Especially if you're, also producing a an open world game yourself right so our game is open world but it's open world on a smaller scale and it, smaller it takes <laughs> yeah it takes eight to ten hours to complete so it's a shorter game mm. than you know a big open world game but it's still more than I like what I, that. Uh, you know yeah yeah <laughs> you're breaking your own rules here <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, well, first of all, uh, you know, manifestos are not, you know, meant to be followed. They're meant to <laughs> start a conversation, as they say, provoke. Um, and also, it was, you know, the idea of that, of the ejecta is there are so many people still that don't play video games, you know, that, you know, but have other interests and they can't relate and they can't enjoy themselves play video games. So, what are the biggest thing we can do as designers to kind of like, have them try video games and experience video games and, and, you know, join the medium, so to speak. And to me that, you know, the, that the game should be 
something that we can experience over the course of a couple of hours is pretty central because that most people, that's the amount of time that they have for something that is not their biggest passion, right? They want, you know, once a week, they watch TV show, once a week, they watch movie, once a week, they read a book, once a week, they go out, and once a week, they play a game, right? And if they do that, uh, that's the amount of time that they're going to have available for something. And they're not going to be, you know, spending time learning all the system of the latest Assassin's Creed. There's no way that like just just all so overwhelming, and then the idea that oh to get to you know the end of the story I need to play for another twenty eight hours no no it's just like not compatible with how that you know again non gamers uh, live their lives right so that was the idea with the reject of like trying to focus on on shorter experiences that can be appreciated by people that are not necessarily into games and I think it it, it works there's still Many shorter, smaller games that, you know, try to be more accessible in terms of, you know, controls and difficulty and focus more on storytelling and world building that, you know, they they work. If you just, you know, it's not every game that they make, but if you look at a catalog of um, publisher Annapurna and you look at their games, they're, I would say, most of them very successful. Yeah, they're super interesting and they're short and they're memorable and they look cool. I think those games, for example, are gonna be, you know, attracting people that, that wouldn't necessarily play Halo or Force Horizon, which yeah. I do play. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was the idea so with the manifesto. If you if you look at all the other points as well, it's just like trying to you know make games not quite how they are made today. And I think my idea was. Uh, if someone looks at this list and, you know, it makes them rethink their game and maybe like take a couple of ideas from this and put them in their game, I think it's going to contribute to make that game more accessible and more interesting to a bigger audience. So that was like the spirit behind it. And the six months production thing, <laughs> it's both, you know, in terms of, like, you know, quality of life and mental health of the people that are working on the games. I think six months pre-production, six months production is, is an ideal length of time for producing something of a certain size that you know lasts two hours. And I think it's the it's a way to make things that are still relevant because we see it uh, with cinema and TV, for example, those shorter production cycles. They make it possible for uh, things that come out to talk about the real world in a relevant way because they can address the politics of their time and the events of their time. Like I'm, I'm watching right now um, The Morning Show on Apple TV. Oh, okay. And the second season... Steve Carell, right? Steve Carell. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Aniston, yes. Yeah. And in, so they work at The Morning Show. And in the, in, in, in the second season... It's happening across this, the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. So, you know, it, as as the pandemic was starting and you see that from their perspective, as they're learning about it, working at, you know, in a news station, so they have some responsibility on how they communicate that. And that's like sort of like a, a background thing. They don't really talk about much because the show is about other stuff, but it's like kind of like mounting, mounting up in the right. background. And the ability to talk about that stuff, and I don't know if you, I mean the main topic of the show is is basically is me too, right? Is 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 abuse in 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 the show business and how systemic it is, right? 
And so they're like talking about the real world today in a, in an, something that is both entertainment and art. And, you know, it makes you think and it makes you think of the, in, about your life and about the place you live in and about your role in, in society. But if you make a game that takes seven years to make yeah. and costs five million dollars, then you're going to make uh, dragons and zombies, right? Because it's just it's it's lower, lower risk. Yeah, it's, and it, yeah, lowest common denominator. Everyone, yeah, you you don't need to know much about the world to understand dragons and zombies necessarily. <laughs> Not that I have a problem with dragons and zombies in games, but I I get what you're saying. Do many games have dragon zombies? That feels like a good thing. Yeah, that, that, oh, yeah. to be fair. There is a, a, a you know an amount of dragons and zombies that you can take. It's like maybe. <laughs> four times a year or, but yeah. if, it, if it's every day it's it's just too much it's that diet <laughs> it's that, mm. yeah but no I, I i agree with the i like the principles yeah i mean if not the exact numbers but i, I like the principle because yeah just games getting bigger and i know some people do have time for them i like an ending just <laughs> on any and any media i can see i like an ending and i like to know i'm likely to get to that ending and when i did this panel I think I pulled up a stat, which was the the amount of people who are finishing games, like the percentage of people. I think the highest the highest percentage of completion for a game was The Last of Us Part Two, and that was like forty six percent, and that was the highest. And then you see all the open world games were at the the lower end of the percentage. So it's like making all these games, and people aren't even yeah. finishing them. Yeah, I... but those games are not. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say I struggled to finish. I struggled to finish games when I like I've never. I struggled to finish games. Full stop. Let alone yeah, like yeah, some of these massive <laughs> games. And I'm like, I'm just never going to finish them. So the game either has to be like short enough for you to complete it, or that if you don't, you're not going to feel like like I have all these games that I feel like. I have unfinished business. <laughs> like I'm going to stay on this earth. <laughs> like I'm just going to be a ghost purely because of these games. <laughs> because I'm never going to get around to finishing them. But then when I played like Little Nightmares, I was like, wow, it feels so good to have a game that you can complete. I done it in one sitting, but you know, yeah, you can I complete it in like in a few. one to four <laughs> sittings reasonably. Yeah. <laughs> and um, like it's it's done and you can feel happy about it and you can go back to it but yeah, at least you know you've you've done it that one time it feels really good yeah absolutely when you have like that feeling that you've seen uh, like also because with game like little nightmares and uh, all those smaller experiences you actually get to see different things in the game because they change moment to moment there are different scenes different situations different gameplay and instead if you're building something that be, can be played for 10, 20, 30 hours, because those open world games are not meant to be finished, as you said. Like, they don't expect, they expect people to spend as much time as they can. So yeah. they can't quite, uh, they can't plan on like, oh yeah, on hour 26, you're going to experience this thing that has never happened before and it costs, you know, 50 million to create this set piece because, yeah, it's very likely that you're not going to see it. And instead, The Last of Us Part Two is designed exactly like that. Is it designed with the idea that most players are gonna go through it, and so each scene is different and gameplay changes, and there's it's like a bigger experience, like a little nightmare, but like on 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 a bigger, longer scale. But even that game, uh, which I absolutely loved, to me is uh, I would have preferred if it was half as long, mm. personally. Um, 
but yeah i can see i i was okay with the length because i finished it so i'm like <laughs> okay but yeah, I, I can see what you mean yeah just because i think oh i've lost it now because i think there was something about if a game doesn't where is it oh my god reduce the scope until it fits in two hours or break it down into multiple games um, and just on that comment like on that just wanted to like ask so how do you feel about like episodic games like the telltale games or i i like the idea and i really liked playing the first life is strange as it came out like i think it was like every two weeks or something like that but in practice, many genres are not like Saturnalia, for example, the game that we're making now, it, it would be impossible for it to be an episodic game because it's very nature of being non-linear and procedural and ever changing. So it, it limits you in some ways to create episodic gaming. And it's also like in, in practice, the only games that have tried doing it are in a very specific genre of this, like I don't know how you want to call them, like interactive movie adventure likes, sort of like that, like in Life is Strange, The Walking Dead. Uh, um, so it'd be it'd be good to see what that looks like in other formats and for other genres. Uh, but I'm I like the idea. I like the idea. For example, games that are broken down into chapters uh, that you can experience them as if they were episodes of a show, which I think. My first memory of it was um, Siren for the PlayStation 3. This horror game that uh, every time you switched it on, it would uh, have like in the last episode. So like telling me what happened since the last week where I didn't, I didn't play the game. And I really like that approach of like having sections that tell me, you know, okay, it's okay now for to, to stop playing. And then when you come back, I'm going to, you know, give you enough information so you're like back on track and know what you have to do. Because you can't really do that with like Red Dead. Uh, a Redemption. Metroid game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, I mean, I guess with Red Dead, it would be very interesting. That would be a, an incredible, incredible technological challenge to just like have all like the procedural storylines and then do a recap yeah. of what happened the, first, the last time you played but that would be so it would actually make me play those kind of games if it had that yeah, there's actually like a few chuck, games like a, sorry there's a few games that log it like in messages like last time like you can go back and see what you done and you can see what storylines you're following so it'd be cool to see that then translated in like cinematics as like catch up I've always said this yeah. I love being able to catch up because I'm like, I spent two years since I played this game. What did I do? <laughs> what yeah, happened? Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. I know, right? Um, I think we, 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 what we keep talking about is this idea of like finding ways to make it easier to play games so that it's, it works better around our lives. And I think that's the biggest challenge that the industry has. And I think many people are aware of it. Like even think about all the new accessibility options that exist in games that are not just about, you know, players with disabilities being able to play those games but it's also you know me being 36 and not being able to aim with two sticks at the speed of a you know 16 year old and having you know the last of us to just do the auto aiming for me or control on on uh, i think i played on xbox but anyway they that the game is playing parts of itself for me so that the game is more accessible around, you know, my lifestyle and the time I have to dedicate to it. Uh, all of these are in that, this direction, I think, of, you know, again, making making the medium more accessible to people that are not necessarily 100% passionate about games. 
And this is a, a really good idea, actually, of like doing this uh, dynamic uh, recaps of what happened in the game before that are part of the experience and not just like a log that you have to open and read back. You know what happened, but it's like part of the entertainment. Like I'm showing you, yeah. Yeah. That could be a challenge for your next game. I can, you can, <laughs> you can yeah, it sounds very hard and complicated and probably doesn't work at all. So yeah. I'm sure we'll do it. <laughs> I think we've got time for a couple of questions. So, Tazzy, I don't know if you want to add a couple before we wrap. Yeah, I think we've got, got a few here. Sorry, I feel like I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> okay, we're good. We're safe. <laughs> Um, so you've like given quite a few sort of like pointers um, and little bits of advice um, today, but is there like a sort of like a a little a pro tip that you have that you could share, particularly for any young people getting in, getting into game game design and game development? How young are we talking? Uh, like school leavers age. School school leavers age. So from like 16 to... My recommendation is to um, just broaden, or is that a word? Uh, Your uh, horizon culturally. And, you know, based on the opportunities that you have, try to see as many things and learn as many things and, you know, uh, read um, books and watch movies and be interested in things that are not necessarily your or related directly related to your passion so that you learn about other stuff that you might be missing out on just because you weren't exposed to it because you no know, we expect school to give us all the pointers to the things that we might like or be interested in and then in reality in life it's always a matter of like oh i never thought i could get into this i never knew that this exists and didn't know that this place exists in this culture and the things that they care about and then usually from those things, there's so much in terms of inspiration and and it, it just it just builds you as an artist and it just gives you, you know, the, the, the strength and the interest of like seeking out new things in the work that you do. And so to me, that would be probably the most important advice is just not to focus too much on, you know, game and games and geek culture and like trying to keep your uh your interests as wide uh, as possible and then be able to bring back those experiences to that thing that you want to do that might very well be uh, making games because i do think that games are you know uh, this is obvious but like the medium of the future <laughs> but it's <laughs> it's uh it's true it's gonna be it's it makes sense that someone today would want to be you know direct in their own games because it's it's going to be relevant uh, as a uh, you know as a as a medium as a as an art so but do that with uh, making sure that you're like kind of like bringing in new things and a new perspective and you know don't be afraid of you know take from your personal experience in your life and you know your history your you know your country the place you live in the experiences that you had and talk about those that's also sort of like part of the same advice uh yeah that would be yeah that would be it i like that i like that i think everyone should listen to your advice (laughs) so that we can have a future filled with like well-rounded games (laughs) i'm not just seeing more of the same stuff and like you must get 
oh, we all get a lot of criticism. The internet exists and we're on it. <laughs> so how do you deal with um, criticism of your games, um, whether that is internally or, you know, outwardly? Uh, I get very sad and I think about it a lot and it's just like, it's very bad. I try to stay away from it because it, it's, I think for the most part, you you should just, you know, <laughs> Try and see if, if there is anything that is actionable and is good feedback and it's practical that it actually makes sense, such as, you know, how to make your game more accessible. But then keep in mind that everyone on the internet has an opinion and they, you don't have to necessarily give everything the same weight and the same importance and take everything as seriously or directly. And because that can affect your mental health very quickly and profoundly, if you give too much attention to, you know, negative steam reviews so my recommendation is really be careful with it and as it might be even it might be worth it not to do that yourself directly but have someone else that kind of like collects the feedback and says hey it, it sounds like people are finding the game too hard <laughs> instead of like reading the harsh comments the direct, that are not yeah, so, yeah. yeah yeah because people forget you know that there is human beings that are making the game on this side of the L, right? It's very easy. I, I remember I was when I was 15, 16, and I was writing on those internet forums about games. Uh, I, you know, I, it just didn't occur to me that, like, I would die if I thought that, you know, someone that had made the games would read what I was writing when I was 15 about those games because I had I had no idea. Well, first of all, at the time, no one... What? I don't know. I guess I, I obsess about what people are saying about our game. So I try not to, but eventually like I end up reading every single mm. commentary on it. <laughs> and, you know, maybe the people have always done it, but I think it's a more, more recent thing. So I don't think people that were, when you know, developing for the Dreamcast, they would like go on Italian forums and see what, you know, Italian kids would say about their games, but maybe they would. And if they did, I'm very sorry about the stuff they wrote. And, but yeah, basically, <laughs> I think it's important to know that, you know, that the, the audience doesn't necessarily know that, you know, you know, <laughs> no, the, people the, making the, games. Yes. The people making yeah. games and that they might read and might, you know, take personally, those commentaries because we're not used to we're used to think in terms of products and not people so keep that in mind as a creator that you know people that are writing those things that's how they think that try not to take things personally yeah. yeah cool yeah i think i think that's a good place to that's a good advice to to end on i think mm -hmm. i know you've got a uh, head off so yeah i think we'll just say like Pedro, thank you for joining us and uh giving us your your journey uh, and your advice as well much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me and for all these extremely difficult questions and everything about what I've been up to for the last. We try to make years. people think. We try. We try. Um, yeah, so yeah. Very good at that. Cool. I appreciate that. No, uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, so for anyone watching uh, live or later, I hope you've enjoyed it. Make sure you're following us here on Twitch, also on social media, so you can catch uh, more of our live streams. We're doing them every month, so we've got our. Uh, Roblox Games Night next week and we've got our uh, New Year Gamepad Online in January so that's going to be on, on the 15th of January hosted by Tazzy bringing more interviews plus game tournaments in our Friendly Fire competition so that's free so just get your tickets there actually I need to sort that 
out. I'm going to do that after this. <laughs> I'm going to sort out a ticket. So give me a, give me a few minutes. But yeah, check that out. So you could also check out our podcast. I've got a new episode out today, Story X Story, hosted by myself and Tazzy. Our episodes cover deep dives into stories across pop culture, plus creator interviews uh, like these ones and video game discussions as well. So you can always give us a shout directly. Our email address um, is gamepad at myamatter.com and our website with links to the Discord and our next event is gamepad.events. That has been our interview for today. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you again very, very soon, like next week. So tune in. <laughs> All right, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.